Hello, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Tuesday, September 26th, and I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow, and TPI's Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Lamb. Today, we're discussing the Google antitrust case, and we're delighted to have Michael Katz as our guest. Michael is Professor Emeritus at the Haas School of Business and the the Department of Economics at UC Berkeley. Michael has also served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economic Analysis at the Antitrust Division, was Chief Economist at the Federal Communications Commission. Michael is one of the most thoughtful economists on competition issues, and I always learn a lot from talking and listening to him. So welcome, Michael. And coincidentally, this is the same day that the FTC has dropped its case against Amazon. So the government has its hands full. The U.S. v. Google case that's currently being tried was filed at the end of the Trump administration. The Biden DOJ has continued the case as well as filing another one of its own. The current case is the first major monopolization case since the Microsoft case. The trial, which is being presided over by Judge Ahmed Mehta, an Obama appointee, started on September 12th and is projected to take about 10 weeks. If Google is found guilty of antitrust violations, there will be a second phase to determine a remedy. And if history is a guide, a final resolution may take many years. So, Michael, I wonder if you could start off by explaining to our audience what this case is about. Um, I'd be happy to, and thanks for the kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be participating. Let me say one thing first, because obviously Google plays a central role in this case, but so does Apple. I've worked for Google in the past, but I want to be clear, I'm not working for Google on this case. I've also worked for Apple on unrelated matters, I just want to be clear that nothing I say should be taken as the view of either company. Also, let me issue a disclaimer of a different sort, which is because I'm not involved in the case, I'm also not working for the the plaintiffs. This is an outsider's view. And so I know I have limited insights into some of the details and the facts, but I'm obviously delighted to be here and I'll talk about things at the high level as I understand them. So... At the most basic level, the government's case, particularly, I'm talking now about the federal government as opposed to the state's attorneys general, it's about monopoly maintenance. Right? They're going to establish, at least they plan to establish, that Google has market power, a couple of different relevant markets here, but we, I think we can just shorthand it all as thinking it's about search and search ads, and then show that Google has maintained its alleged monopoly in this market by means other than, you know, superior foresight, you know, business skill or acumen. In particular, what they're saying, at least sometimes, and it's not clear to me they're consistent, but at least sometimes what they're saying is, look, we're not challenging that Google became, you know, in the Justice Department's view, a dominant, the dominant search provider. We're challenging the means by which they maintain that dominance. We're saying it's not through making their products better, competing for business, it's instead by doing things to weaken rivals. So let's let's talk about what it is the DOJ says Google is doing to weaken rivals. And there's sort of, at a high level, I think two classes of conduct. So one, and let's, we'll focus on Apple. There's some other companies involved as well, but the Apple part's clear is they say, look, Google pays to be the default search engine on Apple Safari and also other search access points on iPhones. There's more involved in that, but I think we can focus on that. So Google pays Apple a share of the revenue that Google earns from search ads where they say run over the iPhone. And that's one element and something there's some dispute about actually where it came from, the extent to which that's exclusive. And we'll come back to that. But fundamentally, the government objects to Google paying to be the default. The other thing Google does in terms of with Android is that Google makes deals with both wireless carriers and also mobile phone manufacturers or OEMs. This says, look, if you want access to certain Google apps, like the Google Play Store and stuff, we want you to give in return Google search preferential treatment. So again, it can show up in the search widget or, you know, get have 
the desirable locations on screens. Okay, so I think there's no disagreement among the parties that being the search widget or being the default provider on Safari, that that's an advantage. Okay, that's, I mean, Google has to admit it's an advantage. Otherwise, why are they either paying all this money or giving people these valuable apps? And the real dispute is, is there something wrong with Google buying that advantage? So Google's position is, and their expert Kevin Murphy says, look, that's competition. We're outbidding others to say, be the default provider on Apple Safari, to be the default search provider on the iPhone. And the government say, no, no, that's not valid competition. That's not competition on the merits. And in particular, the government is saying, look, you're, the reason you want to get the default position is to deny your rivals, say, particularly Bing, but also say DuckDuckGo. You want to deny them scale because government alleges scale is critically important to the quality of your search results. So you need, the more you process search results, the more you learn about what people want to know when they search and the better your search. And so the government's position is that Google is buying preferential positioning both to increase its own volume, but also to decrease the volume of its rivals and their weaken their ability to compete. So I could go on forever. <laughs> Let me stop there. I mean, which direction you want to go with that? Well, one, one thing, well, there's a number of directions, but the obvious thing is no consumers, you know, when they take their iPhone out of the box and start it up, don't they, don't they want to have a search engine, right? That's it's one of the basic things you have a phone for. So don't they want to have have a, a search engine pre-installed? So there's actually uh, arguments about that. And in fact, today, in addition to being the, you know, the day the government's filed its case against Amazon, it's also the day that an Apple executive, Eddie Q, testified about app, what Apple's thinking on this. I think gather half of his testimony was, you know, was confidential and they cleared the courtroom. But this is exactly the sort of issue this is getting at because Again, let's stick to Apple. What the government has to explain is, in, in doing this, or at least I think they should have to explain as well, what should have happened instead? Okay, you don't like it that Google got to be the default, but, you know, if Apple's there saying, well, we think it's a better user experience to have a default. We don't want people to have to make the choice right away. We, Mr. Q testified that Apple does give you a way to change the default if you want, but they want to have one to start. So they say, Apple says, we think it's good for our customers. It's part of our whole user experience with the iPhone that everything just works. And if we're going to have somebody as a default, we want a high quality search engine. And I think there's agreement on this as well, with the exception of people who care about privacy might disagree. But just in terms of general search for the average user, I think there's no disagreement that Google's the best search engine. So Apple says, look, we want to have a default and we want it to be Google because they're the best. And Google then says, so what do we do wrong? And you, know, you can put that as what's the harm to consumers because that's what at least Apple believes its customers want. And again, this is something you know, Google has, has put to the DOJ as part of the sense that somebody's got to tell us what should have happened differently. And in fact, there's a hearing on a motion to dismiss there's this hearing before Judge Maida, and he put that to the DOJ lawyers. He says, tell me what you think Google was supposed to do. He goes, and, you know, put it another way. What, what did they say? Okay. Uh, so I can't tell. I'll tell you, at the transit, I can't really tell what they said. I just think their argument's muddled. So let me put it in a, a different way, because I think there's a, a broader argument. The way I'm used to thinking about and I trust, I think it's what economics says. I think in a lot of ways, it's what logic says. That if you're going to say conduct is harmful, say it's anti-competitive, or you're going to say it had any effect, you have to compare it to something. What, what do you mean? What's the effect? I don't you know. Compared to what? Okay. So we usually think in antitrust cases as we, you know, have a but-for world. And we say if Google hadn't done the challenge conduct, then it would have done something else. And then the plaintiffs would establish that, you know, that was better where better would mean it was less harmful to competition while still achieving the, the legitimate objectives of Google's policy. And as I understand it, the government's witness in the present case 
hasn't put forth a but-for world. Instead, what he did is he said, well, look, if Bing were the default, say, on Apple, then Bing would be a lot better because it would have more volume and there would be more competition. My understanding, and I haven't seen his testimony, this is all gleaned from reading papers filed by the two parties and fighting the motion to dismiss, okay? But my understanding is he hasn't said, oh, yes, and if, the, if Google didn't do certain things, which are illegal, then Bing would have won. He just seems to say, if Bing had won, the world would have been a better place, okay? And it I seems think, like that part of that is that requiring consumers to have a worse experience until Bing gets better. Yeah, it does sound a bit like an infant industry argument. I'm not sure that easy is required. So I think that's, as I understand, I think sort of the biggest weakness in what, in what the government's arguing. And I don't understand their position. I know that the lead lawyer at the motion to dismiss hearing said, the DOJ lead lawyer said that they didn't have to put forth a but for a world. And so they weren't going to. But again, just forget as a matter of law, I don't understand as a matter of logic, how you say this conduct was bad if you don't compare it to something else. And I guess they say, well, we're doing a comparison, but if your comparison is just some idealized world you can't claim would have ever happened, I just don't see the relevance of it. So, I mean, it's not, it's not your job or our job to come up with those counterfactuals, but I mean, we can think about what some way would be and you know, what might they mean? I mean, of course, this is in a deposition. You would never answer this kind of question. It's too hypothetical. But, you know, the other, other possibilities are that you can choose your search engine or Apple could pay Google, depending on, you know, the nature of, the, of who wants what more. What would each of those mean? But, but, here's, a, but here's a problem with the, for the government, I think, the way they brought the case. And this again came up in the hearing because the judge said, you know, because they could say, well, Apple could have had a choice screen. Okay, or Apple could have chosen not to collect billions of dollars and said we're going to pick the default some other way. Although Apple says in any, they testified today, it wasn't based on the money, it was based on quality. But the judge's response was, yes, but Apple's not a defendant in this case. Okay, and so it's why he keeps coming back. He goes, tell me what Google should have done differently. If Apple says we're going to sell the default or we're going to pick someone for the default who's ever the highest quality, What's Google supposed to do? They're supposed to say, well, Apple will pay you not to make us the default. We'll pay you to have a, a choice screen. So that's one of the big problems I think the government has. And that's why I think this is a case which I think is somewhat unusual with exclusive dealing. There's a set of people who want to say, well, let's look, did the customer want the exclusive deal or did the supplier? And often economists say it doesn't matter. You know, they can sort of figure out what their joint interest is. And so who cares which one made the proposal? Here, I think it's going to end up playing or potentially playing a big role. And I think it's an obstacle for the DOJ to the extent, at least with the Apple one, that Apple's saying, no, no, we wanted it. But let me also say something else. Europe, right, is, has been much more aggressive about antitrust in the U.S. in recent years. And they've gone after Google for search. And in fact, they've had choice screens, right? They mandated choice screens on Android. And at least with the... What the European Commission's done, I think there's a pretty broad agreement that it didn't work very well. Where the disagreement comes is whose fault that was. And there's certainly people who take the view that Google designed the choice screens to mess things up. Apparently, some other countries have done something different. There are competition authorities and it's worked better. But that's why it's not, I think right now, we don't know if choice, well, there's no agreement on whether choice screens would work or not. Haven't there always also been choice screens? For browsers, for the Microsoft case, that have had minimal effect or little or no effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I never appeared before the European Commission, so I'll just go ahead and say this. I I think that's right. I mean, there's a, look, there's a history of the European Commission saying, "Oh, we don't like the way the markets work. Let's impose our idealized vision," and then nothing changes. Now, the question is, is that because it's such an impossibly hard problem or is it because the European Commission is sort of singularly bad at this? Look, another thing that happened. So with Android, you know, as I mentioned before, one of the things that U.S. government's objecting to is Google saying, we'll let you have access to our apps like, you know, Google Play or Maps or whatever, but you have to do stuff to promote search. So the European Commission says, well, that's not fair. That's time. So instead, Google... What you should have to do is you should sell the apps to people 
And if you want to get better placement, you should pay for it. So I'm going to just make the numbers up. I don't know what they are, but Google basically said, okay, here's what we'll do. You can have the apps. We're going to charge you 50 euros for the apps. And by the way, we'll pay you 50 euros for better placement. What do you think? And everybody said, okay. And right. So it's, you know, look, I'm not saying you can't have a, a remedy that's effective, but it's proven to be hard. And, you know, DOJ will say, look, we're not in the remedies phase. This is just liability. But I think these issues are relevant because the inability to craft these remedies, I think, in part speaks to what the but-for world would look like, which is very much about liability. So, look, I think one of the things that I think just talking about defaults, I think the government's going to have a lot of trouble. I think, and they, they've been emphasizing this some, as I understand it, in the early parts of the trial, is to say, well, it's not just a Google one to get preferential positioning or whatever else, but they demanded exclusivity. Like they said, you know, you can't have multi sell multiple defaults or something like that. And I could see the government saying, look, this that's what's really anti-competitive. That Google tried to make this all or nothing. They could have done revenue sharing by itself, just said, look, we'll pay you a fraction of whatever revenues we earn. And that creates an incentive, say, for Apple to want to, you know, steer people towards Google search. But I think the end of arguing, you don't need the extra condition that says, yes, and you're not allowed to do anybody else. You know, why not just rely on the affirmative? We'll see where that goes. But I think, you know, this point about saying that Google demanded exclusivity could be a big deal. And then the question will be, what's if, if Google actually did demand exclusivity, that may be a disputed fact. If they did, we'll have to see what Google's explanation is. Um, well, let's, let's go back just a little bit. There are different rules in Europe regarding defaults and how consumers choose. Do we know how outcomes have differed there in terms of which search engines people end up choosing? So my understanding is that the default made the European Commission one, you know, the, the, sorry, having the choice screens made very little difference. Mm -hmm. But as I say, I think it may be, sorry, trying to do something like Turkey and one other country that their change, having the choice screens apparently did make a difference. Mm -hmm. and. You know, there's some theoretical work on this. There's also the things you can just imagine intuitively. That the way you design the choice screens, you know, can make a big difference. But also the way you choose who's on them can matter. And, you know, that's going to, that's certainly the question, say here, if you do get to remedy with Apple, are you going to say to Apple, well, you have to give away the position for free, even though you weren't a defendant in this case and no one said you've done anything wrong, but it can matter how you, the theoretical work on this, if you are allowed to sell spots on the choice screen, it matters, for example, do you make people bid on just being on the list or do you make them bid on being chosen? Which is to say, if I'm on the list, but I'm never chosen, I don't have to pay. And that can make a big difference to who ends up winning the bidding. So there are just tremendous details there. Again, that's the details are something for remedy, but I think the big hurdle the government has right now is they have to show that what Google did matters, that people weren't, you know, weren't going to just choose Google anyway, you know, that the, the Apple wanted to have a default, they're going to choose Google anyway. And so, you know, where's the harm? I think in some sense you've answered this already, or suggested that it's pretty difficult to answer. So what do you think the government has to show to prove its case, or to win its case? <laughs> well, there are a couple of different levels, I guess. I don't know, look, it's, it's hard to establish an the U.S. right that someone's engaged in exclusionary behavior. And economists have struggled to come up with general criteria for whether something's exclusionary or not. The one though, that seems closest that DOJ could be arguing they have in other cases is a no economic sense test, right? So if they go down this road, and it's not clear to me that they are or not, they would say, all right, fine. So Google's bidding for position. Everybody agrees that's helps Google's search business. So some of you got to admit that's reasonable for them to do. But the question is, is that the only reason they're bidding? And does that explain the full amount they paid? Okay. Does it make economic sense that they paid this much just to get a better position for themselves? Or is the only possible explanation that they were also paying to weaken Bing, say? That the amount they paid only makes sense 
if you put into that, you know, if you calculate part of the benefit of winning is that it made Microsoft a weaker competitor. And I'm not aware that the DOJ has alleged that. They've certainly hinted at it. They said, look, you knew it would weaken Bing and you thought about that when you were bidding. I don't know. I mean, it may all be confidential. I don't know if they have evidence or not, like say a calculation by Google saying, you know, this is worth $5 billion to us because we get more business and it's worth $8 billion more to us because it hurts Microsoft. But they had something like that, that I think would be sort of the ultimate smoking gun. They show that they really did do that or something, you know, where they explain that the reason we want exclusivity is not just because we get more sales directly, but again, that it actively weakens their rivals. You know, the government, I think, has hinted at stuff like that and said, but I just haven't seen them take that on directly. But I think it's that. And again, just saying, look, you wanted the exclusive part that you could be the only search engine on the phone, that they could try to go after the exclusivity is again saying that's motivated by weakening rivals rather than improving Google. But what, what aspect of it is exclusive? Well, I don't, sorry, this is a problem because I can't see the record. I don't fully <laughs> understand the facts, but apparently our terms in the contracts that say like you can't have another search provider at a bunch of the spots on the phone or that you can't do something like saying that they're not allowing something like Google says, well, look, we'll give you X percent of our revenue for any search, say on the iPhone, and we'll do that. But that'll be true whether or not you also have, you know, whether for half the customers, you make Google the default and the other half the customers, you make somebody else the default. As I understand it, it's like, if you want us to be, you want to be able to make us the default, you have to make us the default on all of your phones, not just some of them. And, you know, again, you get to the question of, I think there's some dispute about that before the DOJ was forced to take them down. They put up some emails from Google suggesting that Google was demanding that kind of exclusivity. But even if they did, I think there'll still be, you know, a fight over what was the actual effect of that. And was that sort of belt and suspenders by on Google's behalf, because they would have gotten de facto exclusivity anyway. How important are the arguments about the switching costs, about the, uh, you know, the for people who want to install another search engine or switch the default to another search engine? Obviously, Google is, is saying it's, that's pretty easy to do. DOJ is saying it's hard to do, as I understand it. How important are those, are those arguments? So there's a question of importance to what? Yeah, they may be, one thing, they may be important for, for optics. They may be important for sort of courting public opinion. It's less clear to me that they should actually be that important to figuring out what's going on in the phone way. I mean, if it's so easy to switch and everybody switches and it's trivial, then why is Google paying all this money? And I think Google has to admit that. It, it's value. I mean, Google does want to downplay it, but I think, you know, the, the fundamental fact is it is valuable to be a default. And again, I think we get in the question of, you know, sort of what are the effects of that? And so I don't know. I mean, clearly, obviously, Google like to say the effects are as small as possible to, you know, reduce the chance that there, that it has any effects on competition. As I say, maybe it ends up mattering in the courtroom, but I just don't, from my way of thinking, I don't see how it's that big an issue. Seems to me logically that it cuts both ways, because on one hand, they might want to say, well, it's easy to switch if somebody wants it to another search engine. But on the other hand, it seems to me from the consumer's point of view, if it's not that easy to switch, then you really want the one that you think is better pre-installed. <laughs> well, I guess the thing is, I think the Goldilocks solution for people would say, no, if it turns out it has to be harder, people, well, the question is why people don't switch. Again, there are at least three things. So Google says, look, we're, you know, we get picked as the default because we're the best. And guess what? People don't switch because they got us first and we're the best. Another possibility is partly, I think the government's going to argue the next two that I'll mention. One is say, well, look, once you're, if something's the default, it turns out it's a pain to change it. It's a bunch of work. You go through a bunch of steps. And this is where the, the DOJ and Google disagree on the facts, right? How hard is it? But then there's another one, which is, Look, even if it turns out it's trivial to do it in terms of the steps, everything else, you know, people suffer iner- have inertia. And in fact, they, DOJ, one of their first witnesses was a behavioral economist. And so in that one, let me take the view sort of most favorable, I think, to DOJ's theory. They say, look, if you had a choice screen, 
people will make their decisions some way that's pro-competitive. We'll come back to that in a second. And they have to make some choice, so they're going to do it. But once a choice has been made, even though the actual physical switching costs are low, they act like they're very high. So we need to just have people be, we force them to make a conscious decision once. And everything, the idea is that everything will be fine. Of course, that raises a question about, well, they do that. Are they all going to just pick Google? Cause that's the one they've heard of. I think Mozilla has said that they've done a study saying that's not true. I think the DOJ is worried about that argument with some of these things. And one of the things the DOJ says is, well, look, you know, but part of the problem is that Google's popularity is because it's been engaged in bad behavior for 12 years. Okay. Now, the problem with the government falling back on that is you say, okay, so you're saying the last 12 years they've been a monopoly and they've done this. How did they get where they were? Right. If you go back 12 years ago and if they weren't a monopoly, then are you admitting they were better than everybody else? And that's how they got picked. And if that's true, then why is the fact that they continue to get picked all of a sudden bad? And I, you know, again, my reading of it you know, fairly quickly of the motion to dismiss hearing is that the DOJ really does not have a very good answer to that, or they didn't at the time of the hearing, other than they did fall back a bit on saying, well, but once Google had market power, monopoly power, they shouldn't have demanded exclusivity. It wasn't entirely clear to me if they mean that you shouldn't be on defaults, or they mean you shouldn't have these things, and there can be no other people who are, you know, splitting the defaults. But I think that's something they're going to have to try to come to grips with at the trial. If you, if it, you know, the government's saying, Google was a good search engine. They got a bunch of, you got monopoly power in the government's view and did so legitimately sort of, when did the switch get flipped and what was supposed to happen when it did? Do they have to define a market? I mean, are they, and are they going to have trouble defining a market? So they have, I think they feel legally they have to, and they have, as I say, that just to defined at least two markets, sort of a market for general search and then also a market for the associated advertising. If that is disputed, you know, Google says, no, we compete against you know, things like, you know, specialized search like Travelocity or Am you know, Amazon is a huge search provider, but obviously for specialized search. And so, you know, we'll see what happens there. I mean, it's, I, mean, I guess they have to, they haven't really defined it that way. It's sort of interesting. I mean, you could, it's clear that. Let's say that Amazon is a substitute for Google for when you're searching for products. Of course, it's always a question of how close are the substitutes, and that's one of the things we get in the battles. I have wondered whether the government would try to make some sort of argument saying, well, but let's look at something like the market has its own problem, something like the market for being defaults or something. Because clearly, Amazon can't compete with Google and Bing to be the default on Safari. But, you know, they have, but the government hasn't tried to define a market like that. But I wonder if maybe they can make some sort of arguments, at least when we see things like when Google's economist, Kevin Murphy says, look, this is just competition to purchase the default. You know, we're competing as buyers. It's legitimate competition on the merits. Maybe there the government can say, well, but the set of potential buyers is limited. And so we just have to look at, you know, sort of what you're doing to them. So not to talk about the Amazon case specifically, but since you mentioned Amazon, is it possible that one complaint can hurt the government in the other complaint? I mean, do they, do they coordinate enough to make sure that they don't have overlapping, conflicting definitions? And, and saying not to say anything specific about this case, because, I mean, it just came yeah. out. <laughs> I've wondered about that. Um, and how much, and it's interesting, I'm assuming that, well, look, look, let's take another one I've wondered about. So public, a lot of people in public, They've said that DOJ, that sort of they divided the DOJ and FTC divided the world up, right? Mm -hmm. Several years then. They said, FTC, you're, you get Amazon and Facebook and DOJ, you get Google and Apple. And a lot of people ever since have been waiting to see the four cases. Okay. I guess we've now seen, you know, cases against three of them. I assume that the FTC, at least, you know, the people high up in the agency are coordinating there too. And if there were ever to be a, another case, DOJ. It's Apple, they would coordinate. I don't know if they coordinate across, and I haven't looked yet to see, but it's a, it's a really interesting question given the amount of interaction and interrelationships. Right. Between these. Look, it's also certainly wouldn't be the 
I can't think of an example of a specific case, but I have in my career seen plenty of times where even within a single case, the parties argue against themselves. So it wouldn't be unprecedented for there to be some inconsistencies. And this mentioned one, something else in a way it came to mind, but talked about this theory of harm being that Google's denying scale to its rivals and weakening them. And this whole question is, you know, is that what Google's doing or is Google just buying distribution for themselves? There have also been claims, I mean, Tim Wu had this in a New York Times editorial saying that, that Google paid Apple off to harm competition because Apple would have come up with its own search engine, but for all this money, Google's paid them. And I was going to ask you about that. Okay, and I've seen reports saying that the DOJ is challenging that. I've read the complaint and maybe I missed it, although I did use a search to, for the words Apple and entry and a few other things. DOJ sort of mentions that, sort of saying, oh, when Apple didn't enter, but I haven't seen something say it. But I think just the way it keeps saying this whole thing about, well, wait, is Google buying distribution for itself or is it paying to stop others? And the problem here for the government or anybody trying to get to the bottom of it, those are the flip sides of the same coin. Here you've got these two flip sides. You say, well, wait a minute. You say that Google is paying Apple off the block entry, but another interpretation is Apple's a customer. They've gone to Google and say, well, we have an alternative, right? And so Google, you should give us a good deal. Okay. Because, you know, we could use you and the, I mean, maybe the price is negative here and so their customer, but they say, Google, if you, you know, if we don't get a good enough deal from you on search. Yeah, we'll do it ourselves. But that's using the threat of integration to get bargaining leverage. And so, look, there is a logical point the other way saying, well, you're paying them not to enter. And you could try to, I guess, no economic sense to ask you. Somebody could try to go down the road of saying that the amount Google pays is not just because it knows if Apple integrated, here's how much of Apple's business it would lose, but it's also calculated it would lose even more money because it would have to compete against Apple and it's paying Apple's, you know, some of that profits and sort of sharing. You know, we, we saw this show though with maps, right? Because Google used to be the default map. Yep. And then they dropped the deal. Apple dropped the deal. I don't remember what the, uh, all yeah. the details of it. And they made a map and it was terrible for a long time. So maybe, yeah, I actually know I even have a relative who prefers Apple Maps, so apparently it's getting better. Well, but, do, do you ever see them? Do they manage to make it to your house? Yeah. <laughs> but look, you know, we have some of what we mentioned before about sort of these things that are two-edged as well. I mean, the government wants to say also, look, that Google has monopoly power because entry is so difficult, okay? But then, you know, I think maybe that's one of the they don't go down this road and say, nah, but, but for this payment, Apple would have entered. So again, I don't see this, but from what I've seen, playing a big role in what the DOJ saying, but again, critics of Google have said it. Now you could say, yes, but you know, Apple was uniquely positioned to enter and that's why you went after them. But again, I think it's a, you know, it's a problematical rule to say, if someone goes to you and says, you know, I have a better option for supplying myself. And then you say to them, oh, well, then we'll give you a good deal that that's viewed as anti-competitive. Could you also say if there wasn't a payment between Google and Apple that they, they're colluding somehow? If there wasn't some sort of arm's length transaction and people kept using Google as their default, maybe that's why they had a payment. I don't know. It could look bad if there wasn't a payment. Uh, well, you, well, you would, it's true. It would make you wonder why there was no payment either way. I guess you know, Scott was saying how in some, a lot of these things with platforms, you don't know which direction the payment would go. And maybe you could say it was the situation where the forces just happen to balance each other. But, you know, again, this, you're getting at this thing that when you do see the payment, you say Apple, you know, put the other way, Apple had valuable real estate and they auctioned it off essentially. And in putting in the light that's the least favorable to the government, Apple decided we want to do this. They auctioned it off. And Google won. Do they implicitly or explicitly re-auction it off? I mean, I assume that, I don't know the details, I assume that Google has not purchased uh, an indefinite, that real estate in, for an indefinite period of time. Yeah, no, no, I don't know what the terms of the contracts are that's been public, but from what I read right before I got on this session to record this podcast, I mean, Eddie Q was talking about his involvement 
in renegotiating you know, negotiating a new contract. I don't know if it's renegotiation or extension, whatever, but they do periodically get together and negotiate over what the terms are going to be going forward. So, yeah, it's not that something that's signed in perpetuity. And, and, and in theory, at least, Bing could come in at some point and say, we want to pay more or something, right? Yeah, and I think, well, now we get to, I mean, there are two parts of this. Again, apparently, Eddie Q said the main thing to Apple was the quality of the search engines. I would just say, you do have to ask, though, then, well, maybe it says there's just unbelievable amounts of surplus, because if Google really is the only choice from Apple's perspective, you wonder why Google's paying as much as they are paying. But I think it probably certainly is true, though, that Apple's got to care a lot about what the, the quality is. And I think there is a real question how how strong an alternative Apple considers thing to be. But I mean, but it's certainly a possibility. I mean, it's something Apple could choose to do. So I, I can't believe I'm going to ask this question, but in this case, is ten billion dollars a lot of money? I mean, it's a they're talking about you're talking about a, an enormous share of the search market with your mobile search. No, but it's a lot of money if you think that. Google is, I think, general agreement that Google is clearly better and that from Apple's perspective, using any other search provider would really risk damaging their reputation. Then, right. Yeah. Right. But that, but that, but you're getting at this point. That is what I was trying to say. It says maybe the surplus is so large. Yeah. I mean, it's conceivable. Yeah. You're right. If you say something like, well, it's worth a hundred billion dollars. But Google gets most of the surplus because they also realize Apple doesn't really have good alternatives. That, I mean, that's certainly a logical possibility. It's one of the problems we have since none of us can see, you know, all the confidential material. Right. I think at the beginning of this this case, or the beginning of the, you know, when they started putting putting on, and I don't know if they've argued this in court or they just argued it in the press, but I think the DOJ or some people were saying this is similar to the Microsoft case. So is it similar to the Microsoft case or what's your opinion on that? So, I mean, there's similarities. I've actually thought about this a little bit, but is it just there are a lot of different pieces in Microsoft? I mean, certainly the government has argued repeatedly that it's like Microsoft and they're trying to use that as the legal standard. And again, they cited Microsoft in the the hearing to say this why they didn't have to define a but for world. I mean, there's certainly true in Microsoft. There were things where they integrated Internet Explorer into Windows and they're tied and you could say, was that like what's, you know, some of the stuff happening with Android? Although again, it's a little bit different because you have these explicit payments. So I think maybe it's more like the second part where that Microsoft was accused of signing exclusionary contracts sort of about, you know, browser use and promotion, right? So they went to computer OEMs instead of, you know, phone manufacturers and they went to internet access providers, say, instead of carriers. You know, and they cut deals with them, exclusive deals with them. I think, so in that sense, it's similar. I think where there may be some big differences is in terms of at least what some of the distributors, such as Apple, were saying about, did they want to have multiple browsers or did they, you know, it was a sort of forced on them how much people wanted defaults versus choice screens. So I think it's one of these things, the specific facts can potentially matter a lot, but at a very high level, there is sort of this thing of saying, okay, well, you signed these contracts that made it harder for this rival to be distributed. Of course, a big difference there was also, though, if not that the browser it's, itself was making money or even selling the ads, and the accusation was that Microsoft was doing this to protect Windows, because the famous um, line by Gates that the, if browser got a third-party browser became popular enough, that applications would write to the browser and commodify the operating system. So it was really a bunch of concern about two-stage entry. By the way, I have to point out, I think that turned out, I think Gates did believe that that's what they were doing and two-stage entry was a threat. And that ultimately the DOJ kept changing its theory of the case. Ultimately, that was its theory of the case. And I think they all both turned out to be wrong, but it is what everybody was thinking at the time. Right, because we have, in fact, subsequently seen Chrome be really successful, and this has not somehow led to a whole bunch of entry into um, desktop um, operating systems. So, look, I think there are a bunch of similarities, but there are also differences. Actually, I'll mention one other overlap, though, is Mike Winston is 
the DOJ's economic expert in the current Google case. He also wrote an article about the Microsoft case. And one of the things, now it's a long time ago, so economic thinking's evolved, but he did write about how hard it is to determine welfare effects and you know what these things really do. It'll be interesting to see to what extent he's expected to overcome that difficulty. Again, DOJ is putting forth a different standard. They seem to think all he has to do is say, well, if the world were different, it would be better. And he doesn't have to say the world actually would be different had Google changed its behavior. So you don't you're the, you're think they have to show a little bit more concretely that, that consumers are harmed? Well, so the, this may be one that's been why they define two markets. As I understand it, what they're arguing about harm, and I want to come back to harm from what? Arguing about harm and say, well, okay, look, users of search services were harmed because there's been less innovation, because there's been less competitive pressure on Google. And, you know, the rivals have, haven't, I guess, had as strong incentives to innovate. Google hasn't been pushed to innovate. So that's their theory. Consumers in the everyday sense of the word have been harmed. And then they've also put forth, and I said I don't have them memorized, but several mechanisms by which they say advertisers are worse off because they're saying you, know, you want to do search advertising. Google's really, you know, they're saying it's the only game in town, so you have to pay higher prices. And I think they're saying and Google's done some things with targeting or information available to advertisers to make them worse off. So they have identified mechanisms of harm. The innovation one gets tricky because, you know, the link between innovation and market structures, there's a fair amount of disagreement on among economists and antitrust practitioners. The advertising stuff is maybe sort of more traditional or straightforward. But I think, you know, I think in some ways the bigger issue, those again, is harm from what? Because are they saying, well, look, advertisers would be better off if Microsoft, you know, if Bing had been the default and then was much more successful? Or are they saying advertisers would have been better off had Google not engaged in certain conduct? And as I understand it, they tend to focus on the, well, advertisers would be better off if Microsoft had won. And again, I, to my way of thinking, at least that's not the right question. A question you have to answer. But there's another, you have to ask, but for Google's, whatever the anti-competitive conduct is, would Microsoft have won? And then if they would have won, would they have done a lot better? And at least I understand the government hasn't really attempted to address the first question. And it seems to me, again, I, I, I keep coming back to this, but it seems to me that's sort of the biggest weakness in their case. The way I think with Google, maybe the, at least from the bit I understand, it's the biggest thing is, whether the DOJ keep going, okay, but you weren't just buying distribution. You kept saying you wanted exclusives and you want, you know, we're going to say that's showing you really wanted to keep others out, not just get yourself in. Well, this has been very interesting. Do you guys have any additional questions of Michael before we uh, wrap this up? Yeah. So what odds do you put on this over under? <laughs> I actually anticipated that question and like, any student of today, I said, well, I'm going to get that question. I'm going to go ask the chat box on Bing, chat box <laughs> on Bing, what the answer is. And so I asked it. And actually, it gave quite a good answer because it's the same answer I'm going to give you, which it said, well, I'm not going to say I'm just a chat box. But it did. It said, <laughs> but it how, said, how will well, our users know? Yeah, I mean, that's true, know. too. It said, look, we don't, I said, my program or whatever doesn't have access to the most up-to-date information, et cetera. And so I don't offer opinions on the outcomes of cases. I will give a similar answer here. I mean, antitrust, right, is, um, I think practice properly is, is super fact-specific, and there's just so much about it. I don't know um, what's being said. So I won't handicap it, but I will say, because I have said that, I do think that there are a bunch of ways in which the government has an uphill battle, which is not to say they won't win anyway, or we won't see something like, you know, they win, but they don't get much out of what, there's just lots of ways judges can slice things. But I will say this, I definitely do not see it as a slam dunk. And I think to the extent there've been some commentators who've, Particularly, I think some of the first week stuff, which was about, you know, sort of establishing optics that Google is bad. I think those people are overly optimistic. I think that we got a lot of case ahead of us. I guess it gets to a broader question. I mean, it's obviously this case was first filed under the Trump administration, but I'm sure it would have been very difficult for the Biden administration not to pursue it. But, you know, there seems to be an appetite for uphill cases 
What's your general view about that? So, look, I, I do think that American antitrust has gotten out of alignment or something. I think, you know, America, antitrust in the U.S. is common law that has its advantages, right? The, you know, the Sherman Act, right? It's, the Sherman Act's incredibly brief. It's survived for whatever, 100 and some years. And it's because the courts updated and updated with new economic learning. But I think things, I think the courts have gone awry. I think they have gotten sort of too hostile to plaintiff's theories and something needs to be done. Now, it's not clear to me what, what bringing these cases will do on that. What one answer is you say, given how the courts are, if we waited for a slam dunk case, we'd be waiting forever. So we just have to bring one cases and there's some good chance we'll lose, but. That's, you know, the best we can do, and it's a good use of resources. There's another view, which I think several people have ascribed to um, Lena Khan, you know, the chair of the FTC, which is, look, we'll bring these cases and we'll lose and we'll go to Congress and go see, you know, we should have won and we didn't. And that's, this is a way to stimulate legislative reform. You know, unfortunately, I, mean, I think legislation is the right way to deal with things. I mean, it's actually the theory with common law, right? Is that the courts get too far out of line with congressional intent. Congress can act, but the problem is we have a Congress that's completely dysfunctional. So I don't know where it leaves us. I mean, I, I do, you know, I actually have been in favor for many years of the agencies being more aggressive than they have been on section two cases, but remains to be seen, you know, whether it's actually going to do anybody any good. I mean, the danger always is you bring a, a case that's out there and then the court rules against you in ways that become precedents that then hurt cases that are less out there. I don't know. In, in this case, well, we'll see. Maybe, I mean, if any, what happens with it and when, how far up it went, maybe it would be a chance for the Supreme Court to, you know, hair back those elements of the Microsoft decision that are favorable to defendants. So I have just a question about sort of cases in general, antitrust cases in general. They are so often full of quotes from emails. And to me, those just generally mean nothing. I mean, unless you've got like, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs talking to each other about how to set prices. It's also so vague and generic and, you know, kind of this reflecting intense competition. Are those more for show or do courts ever actually take that stuff seriously? So one thing, I don't know what juries do and how much that influences them. Okay. Right. But with judges, I will say, I agree with a lot of what you say, but I've seen in a few places, I've actually been surprised how much judges dismiss some of these, even when sometimes they're very much on point and by very high level people. Mm-hmm. Look, and this actually happened years ago. There was a case brought against American Airlines for predation. And Robert Crandall, Crandall, I think by everybody's agreement, was the smartest person in the airline industry ever, or was one of the top five. And he was not a low-level employee. And he was talking about, I guess, pricing against Southwest. And he said, there's no reason to price this low unless we're driving them out of the market. Right, that's a classic. Yeah, and he also did another thing which involved a lot of, a different case, a lot of profanity, which I'll leave out. But he called the head of Bram up which then exists in the airline, and said, let's collude. And he said, you raise your prices, I'll raise mine. And that also they got off. But that's because Braniff turned him in, and therefore there was no collusion. But right. And also so, soon, no Braniff. Yeah, that's true, too. But so the thing is, I think, look, attorneys continue to try, but I think judges, they just seen so much stuff come and go that they do dismiss it. What's interesting is that the DOJ tried here, as you probably know, one of the first things they did is they called the chief economist of Google to the stand as part of the DOJ case and walked him through various emails where he told people to be careful about how they describe things. Now, the irony is that I was actually just somewhere, which I have to be vague about, but there was a, a government official talking to researchers saying, be careful what they called markets or not, because he didn't want them to then be misinterpreted. And I pointed out to this person, I go, you do realize you just did what DOJ is saying shows you're up to no good. But look, and, but you know, but it does show actually though that Google was worried about it because as I understand what happened is they sent out a memo saying, look, don't run, start talking about market share and things like that. I guess particularly if you don't mean it because someday when we get sued, someone goes, see, you said market share. That shows you think this is a market. Now it's sort of interesting because I think 
you know, that, look, if I were an expert witness in a case and people talk about market share, that is one of the things I'd look at as part mm-hmm. of establishing substitution, how people in the industry think, because you say, well, fine, they're not defining relevant markets from an antitrust perspective, but if that's something they track, it's, you know, it suggests it matters to them, et cetera. But what's interesting here is that DOJ has more made an issue of the fact that Google was thinking about the issue and trying to say, they've, and they've tried to say to the judge, basically, look, but for Google being aware of this, we would have had a lot of hot documents, but Google knew not to create hot documents. And here we have the hottest document of all because it shows they knew not to create hot documents. And other than being sort of too meta and not meta, other than being too meta, I I just think that's not really going to get them anywhere. But yeah, everybody does try. But as I say, I don't know of any cases where, well, look, the one place I think here's where the hot, these hot documents can work is firms do something and then government, whoever the plaintiff says, look, that's anti-competitive and, you know, you were doing this to, for exclusionary reasons. And they said, no, 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 we had this, you know, we were doing it for this whole other reason. And then there's some document that says, oh, yeah, you know, let's claim this whole other reason, even though none of us believe it. Or, you know, let's do it. There are ones like that where they just they go so clearly to it. I guess that's where I've seen it more, where the plaintiffs have successfully said, look, your pro-competitive justifications clearly are just made up and were ex post rationalizations. And there I think it can help mm-hmm. because, you know, that's different than ones where they say, you know, let's go out there and crush the competitors and we'll just kill them. And, you know, they don't literally mean those right. things. These other ones, I think, are a little different. Yeah. Okay. Well, this actually has been very interesting. And I think we've probably gone over the amount of time that we set out to do so. But uh, I want to thank you very much, Michael, for taking the time to do this. And uh, and we'll talk soon. Hopefully. Yeah, we should talk again in a couple of months so we know more about where things ended up at trial, even though it'll, I guess, be a long time before we know which side convinced the judge. I guess if the trial itself takes, what, 10 weeks, and I guess, I don't know, let's say it, it doesn't go to a second phase. I don't know how long it would take. I guess it's going to take a while, regardless, for the judge to write an opinion. But it could be, it could be over sooner than some people predict. Well, I think we'll see whether the trial could end up being shorter than people predict, too, because it's something else I've seen in antitrust cases is, you know, at some point, I've seen this more than once. The judge is like, okay, I'm kind of hearing the same things over and over. And I kind of get, you know, can we just get to the point? And so we'll see. I could see one or both sides trimming their cases just to stay on the judge's good side. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. 